but do you know the reason why sin is deadly? Do you know why sin is deadly? Have you ever considered what it is about the nature of sin that makes it so deadly and catastrophic to the human race? There are lots of things, of course, lots of things that make it that, but one of the things that makes sin so scary and deadly and catastrophic, get this now, is that it blinds the heart to the very thing it needs the most. Sin blinds the heart to the very salvation it needs the most, the very savior it needs the most. You see, sin, sin does this thing where it reduces people made in God's image to be like rabid dogs that bites the hand that tries to save them. Like an immune deficiency virus, sin attacks that person's ability to see that what they need most is a savior. Sin gouges out the eyes of the soul, as it were, to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. It makes people think that Christ is the obstacle to their joy rather than the object of their joy. That he only gets in the way of what they think will make them happy. Sin makes the gospel sound offensive. Christ intrusive. Hell abusive. Man impressive, all the while making itself look so seductive. Bottom line, at the end of the day, sin is practical insanity. It's suicidal pleasure. It's kryptonite of humanity, the cancer of the soul, and without sovereign grace opening the eyes of the blind and awakening the heart, not a single lost soul ever born would ever believe the gospel and be saved. That is the problem with sin. And this morning, we get front row seats to the blinding power of sin and its effect on the human heart in John chapter 12. Because in John chapter 12, Christ wrangles with a crowd of people who just, frankly, they don't get it. They just don't get it. After two years, 11 months, 300 plus days of indisputable evidence that he is God in human flesh, the people just can't seem to connect the dots that he is the very Messiah for whom they have been waiting for centuries. And what strikes me is so odd about the scene is that the crowd with whom Christ wrangles and even pleads to be saved were hailing him as their Messiah two days ago. Today is Tuesday. Two days ago it was Sunday. And on Sunday, these same people that you're about to see lined the streets of Jerusalem, hailing Christ as their Messiah and their King. And now it has become clear that they don't have a clue who he really is. You're about to see the questions they ask are negative and hostile. The answers Christ gives offend them and irritate them. Everything Christ says makes the people bicker and complain. In fact, Christ could barely say anything without the crowd resisting in some hostile way. And all it does, all it does is awaken us to the reality that despite their flattery and enthusiasm just two days ago, they are in fact blinded by their sin and on the brink of murdering their own Messiah, which is of course exactly what they do. And here's the thing about that, that sin blinded murder of the Messiah 
is exactly what Isaiah predicted 700 years before this moment in Isaiah chapter 53. And that's where we're going to be next week. It's where we're going to be the week after that. And who knows, maybe even the week after that. And that chapter, that prophecy is arguably the greatest chapter of Christ in the Bible. And yet to heighten the suspense of that chapter, to prepare you for that chapter, I wanted to see its fulfillment in what was predicted first. I want to see the very rejection that Isaiah described in Isaiah chapter 53. And I want to see it here in John chapter 12. Because in Isaiah 53, Isaiah predicted this. Listen carefully. He, the Messiah, the servant, he was despised and forsaken of men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we did not esteem him. And there it is, scorned by the ones who came to save. Denied by the ones who came to deliver. Rejected by the ones he came to redeem. That's exactly what John chapter 12 is. And yet do not be fooled. Do not be fooled, beloved, because sad though this chapter is, you are not going to feel sorry for Christ. Because what John chapter 12 is, and obviously we can't cover everything, but what John chapter 12 is, is his final sermon to the people of Israel. It's a chapter in which he loads up the double-barreled shotgun of the evidence that he is the Messiah, and then he pulls the trigger. It's his final public appearance in John. He goes out with a bang. It's his grand finale, his one-two punch, a fireworks display of theological majesty. And all of it is designed to persuade these Jews on the brink of hell that Christ is a treasure worth giving everything up for. And I know you're not Jews, let alone unbelieving ones, but you've still come to the right place. This is still the right sermon for you because what you're about to see is compelling and beautiful and practical, not because what you're about to see is about us and our problems, but it is about the supremacy of Christ, and that's what we need for everything in life. So here we go, John 12, 27 through 36, the final sermon of Christ to the lost sheep of Israel. Here's where we're going. This morning, I want you to see from our text two theological certainties. Two theological certainties that will make you great theologians of the cross. Two theological certainties that will make you great theologians of the cross. And maybe you don't want to be that. Maybe you don't want to be a great theologian of the cross, but you must be a great theologian of the cross. You have to be. Because that's where all true life change and transformation begins. Here we go. Theological certainty number one. Number one, the necessity of Christ's death as the means to God's glory. No, that's kind of long, but here it is again. The necessity of Christ's death as the means to God's glory. That is essential. And yet what you can't forget, what you must absolutely remember is that the scene here in chapter 12 is both geographically and chronologically explosive. Geographically, this chapter is a big deal because every moment in this chapter unfolds not only in Jerusalem, but even within the walls of the temple itself. You remember Jerusalem at this time was an absolute hornet's nest of hostility. Jerusalem was literally the most dangerous place on the planet for Christ to be, and yet here he is, here he is with his head, as it were, in the mouth of the lion. 
Chronologically, this chapter is massive because John chapter 12 puts us days, less than a week away to the most significant salvation event in history, namely the sin-bearing sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. And you see, that's the very thing that Isaiah 53 predicts, the very thing Isaiah 53 points to. And every moment that passes, the shadow of that execution looms darker and darker and heavier and heavier until Christ is almost very nearly crushed beneath the weight. Forcing him to say things like this. Look at verses 27 and 28. Now my soul has become dismayed. And what should I say, Father? Save me from this hour? No. But for this reason, I came for this hour. Father, glorify your name. A voice, therefore, came out of heaven and said, Indeed, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And you see it there in verse 27. Whatever, whatever the topic of conversation was, has, Christ's, has caused Christ's soul to become troubled and disturbed and dismayed. And yet that word there, that's not your everyday word for anxiety or, or butterflies in your stomach or knees that shake when you have to do something in public. No, that, is the, that word literally means to boil water. That's the word that you would use to describe the confusion on a battlefield or the delirium that comes from a fever. And you know what the topic of conversation was, don't you? You know exactly what it was. The topic was the necessity of his death. Sin-bearing, sacrificial, substitutionary death in the place of sinners in which he takes upon himself the weight of the wrath of the avalanche of the anger of God. That was the topic. Look at verse 23. He announced to the crowd, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. What hour? What, what, what hour are you talking about? And very clearly, very clearly, it has to be the hour of his death. And we know that it is because the very next verse, he says this. He says, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it brings forth much fruit. Do you see? He is the grain of wheat. And he has to die. He just has to die. He has to be buried like a seed in the ground to bring forth a harvest of souls from every nation. He has to die. And if he doesn't die, every soul goes to hell forever. That's how big this is. And bearing all the weight of the wrath of God for the elect is just too much to bear. And therefore he cries out, now my soul has become dismayed. And you think, really, Jesus? I mean, you are God, right? You did create all things. You are omnipotent. I mean, for crying out loud, you're going to be resurrected from the grave three days later. I mean, get some perspective here, Jesus. Get a hold of yourself, Jesus. It's not all that bad. And yet that's what makes the incarnation so profound, isn't it? Isn't it? Christ experienced all of the agonies of being human. 
including death. Christ was not some trust fund kid that needed his wealthy, rich daddy to bail him out of his problems. Christ never once pulled the parachute of his deity to save him from the impact of his humanity. No, he experienced without ever sinning, he experienced real fear, real temptation, real pain, real agony, real torture, real death, and never once did he wave the magic wand of his deity to save him from his humanity. But troubled, troubled though he is, he's not looking for sympathy. He's not looking to dodge a bullet. He's not looking for a way out. He's not looking for a a loophole. He knew from all eternity that this was the plan to be led like a lamb to the slaughter. And although he doesn't particularly, he's not particularly thrilled about the idea of being beaten beyond recognition. He's not particularly thrilled at the idea of hanging like a piece of bloody meat on a Roman torture device. He's not particularly thrilled at the idea of taking the father's wrath upon himself. He knew that if the plan of redemption was going to happen, and it is going to happen, this had to happen. And so despite his feelings, look what he says in verse 27. Yeah, my soul is troubled. My soul is dismayed. I ain't going to lie, but what am I going to say? Father, save me from this hour. No way. For this reason I came for this hour. Well, you think I'm going to back out now? You you think I'm going to back out on the plan? Predestined from all eternity? You think I'm going to back out on the very reason why I showed up to the planet in the first place? And then he answers his own question in the most breathtaking way possible. He prays to the Father, verse 28. What should I say? Save me from this hour? No, Father, glorify your name. Glorify your name, Father. That is profound, isn't it? He prays to the Father to glorify his name, get this, in the context of his death. So what? What does that mean? What does that matter? What is the connection? And the connection is clear and unmistakable. Listen carefully. The Father was most glorified in the death of his Son. In other words, if the goal of God for history was the salvation of the nations for the glory of his name, and that was always the plan, then the only way that was ever going to happen is if Jesus Christ is slaughtered like a lamb in their place, in our place. That's exactly what happened. And apparently... Apparently, the father had such joy and delight and and exultation over that request that he answers out loud. He cannot but help but answer that prayer out loud in an audible voice. Look at the end of verse 28. Then a voice came out of heaven saying, even I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. That's profoundly significant. The four gospels make clear that the father spoke out loud exactly three times in Christ's life. Once at his baptism, once at the transfiguration, and right here at this very moment. 
And when the father answered his prayer, what did that do but confirm every single thing that Jesus Christ ever claimed about himself, right? His identity, his deity, his supremacy in here, obviously the necessity of his death. You you understand all of that was confirmed the instant the father spoke out loud. And yet what exactly, what exactly was the father's meaning? Why did he speak about his glory here? In this context, in response to the prayer of his son for his glory about his son's death, what is the connection between the death of Christ and the glory of God? And the connection is this. Listen carefully. In fact, it's the point of the entire scene. The ultimate reason Christ died was not ultimately to get us forgiven, although that does happen and we're grateful. The ultimate reason Christ died was not merely to get us escape from eternal hell, although that does happen, and for that we are grateful. The ultimate design of the death of Christ was not even a way to get us to heaven or the kingdom as an end in itself, although that does happen, and for that we are grateful. No, the reason Christ died was ultimately And finally, and primarily, an issue about the glory of God. To repair the damage that we had done to the glory of God. That God would be displayed for the infinitely valuable treasure that he is. Now don't don't mistake here. Yes, Christ died because the Father loved you. Yes, Christ died because Christ loved you. Yes, he died so that we could savor the riches of eternal life. All of that is true. But the ultimate aim of the death of Jesus Christ was to bring the glory of God back to the center of reality where it rightly belongs. And when Jesus Christ returns to build his kingdom, that's exactly what's going to happen. And you just think about this moment here. This this moment here with Christ on earth, Father speaking out loud, this is literally one of the greatest moments in human history, isn't it? If you think about it, that's that's a really unbelievable event. And this is the very kind of event and situation that unbelievers claim that, well, if that would happen, if God would just speak from heaven, if he would just announce his presence, if he would just reveal himself speaking out loud from heaven, then I would believe Then I would trust in Christ. Then I would take seriously the Bible's claims. But when it actually did happen, none of that took place. You would think that what just happened would lead to the greatest revival in history, and yet such was not the case. Look at verse 29. So sad. Spiritual blindness on ugly display. Look at the text. The crowd, therefore, who stood by and heard were saying that it had thundered. Others were saying that an angel had spoken to him. That's really sad, isn't it? I mean, apparently, apparently the voice of God is how you would expect it to sound like thunder or the detonation of a bomb and Even though it broke the sound barrier and made the ground shake, very few, if any, understood this to be the voice of God himself. The skeptics thought it was thunder. 
Those a little more spiritually sensitive were open to the idea of it being an angel, but no one, very few, if any, thought, knew, understood this to be the voice of God himself because the crowd was blind and dead and damned and helpless. And look at verse 30. Christ gives the reason why the father spoke. Jesus answered and said, this voice has not happened for my sake, but for your sake. He didn't do this for me. He did it for you. I have zero doubts about who I am and what my mission is. But the Father thundered from heaven to persuade you that I am everything that I have claimed to be. And yet the sad reality is, just like Isaiah predicted in chapter 53, they were not persuaded. My question for you is, are you persuaded? Are you persuaded that Christ is who he revealed himself to be? And I know you are because you're here But are you persuaded by that? Are you persuaded that he is the word of the Father, the incarnate one, the God who became man for us and for our salvation? Are you persuaded that he is the Son of God, God the Son, the second person of the Trinity? That he is the Son of Man, the Messiah to come? That he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Are you persuaded that he is the Messiah, the serpent crushing one? Are you persuaded that he is the bread of life, the one who satisfies the soul, the light of the world, the one who is the source of life and truth and salvation? Are you persuaded that he is the good shepherd and the resurrection and the life? the source of life and the cure for death? Are you persuaded that he is the way and the truth and the life, that he is the true vine? Are you persuaded that he is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come? Are you persuaded that before him, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord? Are you persuaded that he is the image of the invisible God, the first born of all creation? Are you persuaded that he is the radiance of the Father's glory and the exact representation of his nature? Are you persuaded that he is Lord and God and King and Savior and treasure of the universe? Are you persuaded that he is sovereign and supreme and sufficient and satisfying? Because these people were not persuaded. And in verses 31 and 32, he does something profound. He, he gives three ways, three reasons his death brings glory to the Father. And these are devastating. Reason number one. Reason number one, the death of Christ displayed the guilt of the world. The death of Christ displayed the guilt of the world. Look at verse 31. After announcing his death, and then the Father speaking from heaven, he says, Now, now judgment has come upon this world. What does that mean? Now judgment has come. Wasn't the world already in trouble? Wasn't the world already guilty? Absolutely it was for its sin, collective sin and fist-shaking rebellion against the creator. But you have to understand that this moment was massive. This formal Trinitarian announcement of the death of Christ for the glory of the Father simply intensified and confirmed the judgment on the world. Which sounds weird, right? Because we 
typically think of the death of Christ as that which saves sinners, not condemns them. And yet the point is the very fact that he had to die for sinners, the very fact that he had to die to save them shows how serious sin really is, doesn't it? You understand if sin is a small problem, you need only a small savior. If sin is a small problem, you, salvation is nothing more than God chipping in to help you out a little bit. And yet, and yet listen carefully, if salvation required the slaughtering of the son of God, and that is exactly what it required, then that just proves how deep and vile the sin and guilt of the world really is. Reason number two, his death brings glory to the father. Number two, the the death of Christ dealt the devil a death blow. The death of Christ dealt the devil a death blow. Look again at verse 31. Now judgment is upon this world. Here it is. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. There it is. The reign of Satan is going to end one day. Notice the future tense of the word. He will be cast out because that means he is here now, even as we speak. Wreaking havoc on the planet as the father of lies, the ruler of the world, the God of this age, the prince of the power of the air. The spirit is now working in the sons of disobedience, the the serpent and the dragon who kills and steals and destroys and deceives all the nations. And yet the day is coming, beloved, when all of his dominion is going to end one day. And yet, right now, even at this moment, his kingdom does unravel little by little, moment by moment, as his captives and slaves get saved by the gospel. That's true. But at the end of the age, when Christ returns to build his kingdom, it's there he will land the final punch. You need to see the connection between the death of Christ and the end of Satan's reign. You need to see the connection between those two things because this goes all the way back to Genesis 3.15, doesn't it? That original promise in the garden that the offspring of the woman would crush the serpent's head. You have to understand that the death of Christ is the great eviction notice to the evil one, that there was a new sheriff in town, that his reign of terror was effectively over in the world. Because get this, at the cross, the only real weapon Satan had was ripped from his claws. And you know the weapon he had was? Dying with unforgiven sin, Hebrews tells us. That's all he had, dying with unforgiven sin. And yet death and sin were the very things Christ conquered. And so what that means is that the great dragon has been neutered and defanged and declawed. And it's just a matter of time before he is removed once and for all. And so weird question, but I think it's a necessary question is, how is your theology of Satan? How good is your theology of Satan? What I mean is, you're not afraid of him, are you? You're not afraid of him, are you? Because you understand if you belong to Christ and you are bought with the blood of the Son, there is nothing he could do to harm your soul. Nothing. And I'm not saying he's not dangerous. 
I'm not saying that he's like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour because that's true. I'm not saying that he couldn't, under God's gracious granting, do to you what he did to Job because that is theoretically possible. I'm saying is that if you are bought with the blood of the Son, he has zero power to get you unbought, unchosen, unforgiven, unloved. He doesn't have the power to change the father's mind about you. He doesn't have the power to change the payment of the death of his son in your place. The megaphone with which he slandered you has been torn out of his hands. And now you stand safe and secure, purchased and paid for in full by Jesus Christ. Finally, number three, the death of Christ brings the father glory because three, it saves God's elect from every nation. It saves God's elect from every nation. Look at verse 32. He says, and I, if I should be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. Notice his terminology there. If I be lifted up from the earth, that means crucifixion. He's used that term on a couple different times, a couple different occasions. And every time it has to mean execution, his, it literally means to be hoisted up on a cross in execution. And we know that's what he means because the very next verse, it says, Jesus said this indicating of what sort of death he was about to die. But did you notice the weight of the word, the weight that he put on the word, if, if I should be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself, meaning If he doesn't die, every soul goes to hell forever. But notice particularly what he said. If I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. Because that was the plan. That was always the plan. The lifting up of the son, the death of the son to save the souls of men. And when Christ says all men, all people in the context of the gospel of John, we know exactly to whom that refers. It's not every single individual person without exception. It is John 6, John 10, John 17. It is the chosen. It is the elect. elect. It is those before time whom the father chose from every nation and gave to his son for whom he would die and purchase with his blood. And Christ says, I will draw them, literally drag them to myself. Which is another way to say that we, they would be saved by sovereign grace. And I know you know this stuff. Now you, you, you know about the cross. You've heard about the cross. This is not new to you. And you and I both know that you and I do not know this or love this the way we ought. We need to be theologians of the cross, beloved. We need to be theologians of the cross, great theologians of the cross and all that he accomplished. You need to study. You need to give yourself to know Isaiah chapter 53, which we're going to start next week. You have to give yourself. You have to know. You have to master Ephesians 1 and 2. You, you got to know this. You got to know. You got to give yourself to. You got to master Hebrews chapter 7 through 10. You've got to know and master all of the book of Romans. You got to know this stuff. 
Because the more our souls are staggered by the cross, the more holiness and hope and joy and love will be unleashed in our lives. Theological certainty number two. Theological certainty number two that makes you great theologians of the cross. Number two, the identity of Christ's character as the source of salvation. That was a mouthful. Sorry, not sorry. Let me say it again. The identity of Christ's character as the source of salvation. Because to this day, to this day, one of the most humiliating experiences of my life was in seventh grade when we had to do square dancing in PE. (laughs) Square dancing in PE. What is this world coming to? And what made it a particularly miserable experience for me at that time is that at that particular stage in my journey to manhood, I had what you might call a significant sweating problem in the armpit regions. I've since been cured somehow. I mean, I was literally Lord of the sweat rings. And for whatever reason, it just happened to be in in God's providence that my dad at the time was on this water conservation kick and he would only allow me to take showers every other day, not every day. And so here we are, we're doing square dancing, in more infrequent showers, constant sweating, and you do the math. And if you know square dancing, you have not just one, but multiple dance partners that you kind of you know, exchange and, and do your sort of thing with. And all my dance partners were all friends, all these girls friends with one another. And I could smell me and they could smell me and they could not make it more obvious how repulsed they were by my presence. It was very humiliating. And a terrible segue for, for a sermon here. Uh, for completely different reasons. I, completely different reasons, much less significant and weighty reasons. I I kind of, like Christ, I kind of know what it's like to have people repulsed by your presence. Because that's exactly how they treated Christ in in John chapter 12. Again, you have to remember that he is on the campus right now of the temple preaching to a packed house full of people, and yet they're not buying what he's selling because what he is selling is himself as their Messiah. And look how they respond in verse 34. The crowd answered him, therefore, we have heard out of the law that the Christ remains forever. And how do you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Do you see? And you can, you can tell, whatever Christ just said about his own death and, and execution creates a theological problem for the crowd, doesn't it? Because look at the text. They have one objection and two questions. One objection, two questions. First, the objection. We have heard out of the law that the Christ remains forever. Just hold on a second, they say. Hold on a second. We read in the scriptures and we see a Messiah who is an eternal being, an eternal king, who will reign forever. And guess what? They were not wrong about that. They were right about that. 2 Samuel 7, Psalm 89, Psalm 110, Isaiah 9, Jeremiah 23, Ezekiel 37, and Daniel 7 all say that very same thing. The Messiah would be an eternal being and reign forever. That much they got, they understood, they were exactly right. And yet, question one, how do you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Do you see? You, you claim to be the Son of Man? Fine. 
But you seem to be saying that the Messiah must die, and that doesn't make sense because the Messiah is supposed to be an eternal king and reign forever. And again, they were exactly right. The problem is, the problem is, they missed all that stuff in the Psalms and the prophets that showed that the Messiah would be betrayed and arrested and mutilated and murdered first and then receive his kingdom. Do you ever hear of selective hearing? Hearing and believing only what you want to hear and believe? They had a selective theology. A selective theology that, that made a crucified Messiah unintelligible, not even just unintelligible, but even offensive enough to kill him. Which brings us to question two, verse 34. Who is this son of man? They are totally baffled. <laughs> you call yourself the son of man? Fine. But you say that the son of man must die, and that doesn't make the least bit of sense. Because the son of man we see in scripture is invincible and indestructible and will reign forever. And again, they were exactly right. I mean, they're looking at texts like Daniel 7, 13 and 14, which reveals the son of man coming to earth, reigning as king, being worshipped by the nations. They were exactly right. So you can understand their confusion when Jesus says that the son of man has to die. That's impossible. That cannot be. You must be talking about a different son of man. Who are you talking about? And you see, that was their problem. That was the problem. There was no other son of man. The suffering one and the sovereign one were one and the same. You see, they wanted what they wanted and it blinded them to the text. It blinded them to Christ. Their fears and desires and longings and lusts and cravings made them misinterpret the word of God and skew it to fit their own cravings and agendas. Have you, have you ever seen people do this? Have you ever done this? Because I've seen parents. I've seen parents twist the Bible, do exegetically and hermeneutically unthinkable things with the Bible to twist it, to make it sound like it affirms homosexuality because they had a kid who embraced that sin. I've heard people do magical things with the Bible to make it sound like it doesn't affirm eternal hell because one of their relatives died as an unbeliever. I've seen it again and again, over and over. People deny election. God's sovereignty over sin. The roles of men and women, homosexuality, the justice of hell, the exclusivity of Christ, all because what they wanted superseded what God had spoken. And these people here, that's exactly what they, they had done. They wanted a king who would crush their enemies, but they did not want a savior who would be crushed for their sin. They wanted to bask in the glory of the kingdom. But they did not want to bow their knees with broken hearts in repentance and faith. And therefore, Christ had to persuade them of who he was. Look at verse 35. He answers their question, who is the son of man? 
I'll tell you who the son of man is. Look what he says. Even for a little time, the light is among you. Walk while you have the light in order that the darkness should not overtake you. That's very smooth, Jesus. Do you see what he did there? He just explained the title of the son of man with another title. And he called himself the light. And you know exactly where he got that from, don't you? He got it from Isaiah 49, verse 6, that says that the Messiah would be a light of the nations and bring salvation to the ends of the earth. The Son of Man is the light. The Son of Man is the Messiah. And isn't it interesting that four chapters after chapter 49 is chapter 53 of Isaiah? A servant who suffers for the souls of men. A servant who suffers for the sins of men. One who is slaughtered as a sacrifice for men. And then after, after gains the supremacy. Because first comes the suffering, then the supremacy. First comes the thorns, then comes the throne. First comes the execution, then comes the exaltation. I mean, just think about how tragic the scene is. The very Messiah for whom they had been waiting for centuries was here. And they didn't even recognize him. He was in the world, John says. And the world was made through him. And the world did not know him. He came to his own, but his own did not receive him. That is crushing. That is crushing and tragic, which explains the urgency in verse 35. Even for a little while, for a little while, the light is among you. Just for a little bit. The offer of salvation is not going to stay on the table indefinitely. You, you don't just get to sit on the fence and postpone your decision and, and shrug your shoulders like a good agnostic forever. You will not always have that opportunity. The window is closing and you are going to have to choose and you are going to have to choose wisely. Which is, by the way, profoundly relevant for those in this room who have not yet truly yielded to Jesus Christ. Or those you know in your life who have not yet yielded to Jesus Christ because you understand if you do not yet belong to him, the way is still open for rebels to repent, but not for long. And so what does Christ do but give a couple implications? Look at verse 35. Even for a little time, the light is among you. Here it is. Walk while you have the light that the darkness may not overtake you. See the implication? Walk while you have the light. Walk meaning what? Walk meaning live. Live this life by living by faith in me. Live this life by trusting in me as the only one who can save you from destruction. Or as he puts it at the end of verse 35, that the darkness may not overtake you. Are you afraid of the dark? You should be. If you don't know him, because it doesn't mean literal dark absence of photon particles. He means 
spiritual darkness, which is a graphic illustration of the power of sin and the slavery to sin and the tyranny of sin and the ultimate destination because of sin, namely hell itself. And his point is clear. He is the only one in the universe who can save people from that. Verse 36 Another implication, while you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. I mean, you can hear it. You can see it. You can hear it in his voice. There's only so much time. These people are going to have to decide. You, if you have not already, you are going to have to decide. While you have the light, while you have the opportunity, Christ says, believe in the light. Believe in me, he says. And you know what belief is, don't you? You know what faith is, don't you? Not mere affirmation of a few historical facts, although that's true. Not merely believing in something that you can't see, although that's kind of true. Not merely that you prayed a prayer one day. No, faith is to come to Jesus Christ bankrupt and thirsty and empty and naked. Bottom line, faith is to despair in your worthless works to save you and to cast yourself upon Christ in the infinite salvation, blood-bought riches that are available by faith in him and at the top of the heap of those riches that make it so worth it to trust him and give your lives to him. Look at the end of verse 36. Believe in the light. Why? that you may become sons of light. I mean, is that a way to talk about adoption or what? What does that even mean? Believe in the light, become children of light. It's, it means very simply, listen carefully, those who trust in the light become adopted sons and daughters of the living God and recipients of everything the light has to give, which is himself to be enjoyed as their greatest treasure forever, not to mention the infinite riches of the new covenant like regeneration, being born again. Like redemption being purchased from the slave market of sin. Like forgiveness, having the permanent, having the cancellation of your permanent criminal record permanently deleted and canceled. Like adoption, becoming sons and daughters of the living God. Like justification, having the perfect righteousness of Christ transferred to your bankrupt spiritual bank account so that the Father sees you as not guilty and as righteous like reconciliation reconciled to God as the treasure of your soul, not to mention citizenship in the kingdom and in the new heavens and new earth forever and ever. You understand all of that is ours by faith in Jesus Christ. All of that can be yours by faith in Jesus Christ. That's the theology of the cross. And you need to become great theologians of it. So let me finish with seven reasons. Seven reasons. I didn't tell you I was going to do this, but seven reasons Christ died that you may become captivated theologians of the cross. This is, these are all in your notes. These are going to go fast. Because here's what you have to understand is that Christ 
And all that he accomplished is at the center of all biblical theology. Do you know what I mean by that? I mean that we cannot fully understand anything in the Bible unless we understand it in relation to Christ and all he accomplished. We need to be good, great theologians of the cross. So seven reasons Christ died that we may become captivated theologians of the cross. Number one, Christ died to reverse the effects of the fall. To reverse the effects of the fall. And when I say effects, I mean all of the effects of the fall. Not only will people be redeemed, but our bodies will be resurrected, our souls repaired, and all of creation will be restored. Jesus bought that. That will happen. And Colossians 1, 15 through 17 says so. Number two, Christ died to ruin Satan's kingdom, to ruin Satan's kingdom and topple it to the ground because at this moment, Satan's castle crumbles and shakes and at the second coming, his reign of terror will be over forever. The prince of darkness, grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. Number three, Christ died to release sinners from Satan's blindness. To release sinners from Satan's blindness. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 is clear. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they might not see the light of the gospel. But the God who is the God over the God of this world, namely Jesus Christ, died to deliver his people from the blindness of the evil one. Number four. Christ died to ransom sinners from the slavery to sin. To ransom sinners from the slavery to sin because we were born slaves. Every single one of us without the power and without even the desire to free ourselves from sin. And yet the ransoming, redeeming, sin-crushing power of the cross sets sinners free from the slavery to sin. Number five. Christ died to reconcile sinners back to God. Christ died to reconcile sinners back to God, which was the point of the cross. You know that, right? It wasn't just to get us forgiven. It was to get our sins out of the way to bring us home to God. First Peter 3, 18 is clear. Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, nor that he would bring us to God. Number six, Christ died to restore the people of Israel, to restore the people of Israel, to raise up the tribes of Jacob and save them from destruction and grant them every single covenant promise God ever made, which is profound because when they murdered him, they had zero idea that that was the very means to their own restoration. Ha. Number seven, Christ died to return the fallen kingdom to man. <laughs> to return the fallen kingdom to man, because you know that, right? We were made to rule. 
We were created initially to be kings and queens ruling the earth under the glory of Yahweh. But Adam lost it all, blew it all when he unleashed the virus of sin into the world. And yet the restoration of our reign with Christ over the earth is precisely why he died. Revelation 5, 9 and 10. And with this I close. This is a song sung to Christ at the end of the age. And it goes like this. Worthy are you, Christ, to take the book and to break its seals because you were slain. Listen carefully. And you purchased with your blood for God some from every tribe and tongue and people and nation and made them to be a kingdom and priests. Here it is. And they will Rain upon the earth. That is why the lamb was slain. To make us kings and queens on the earth once again. That's good theology. Theology of the cross. That's the kind of theology that has the power to renew our minds and restore our souls and refurbish and renovate our lives for the glory of his name. That is the theology of the cross. And now, now we are ready for Isaiah chapter 53. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, thank you for glory in unexpected places. We, we forget, oh, Lord, that your word is a beautiful tapestry woven together in a way that only a divine, sovereign God can. That your word unfolds, a drama of redemption unfolding in the world, and our lives are a part of that and have been ever since you singled us out and selected us before time began, and we're so grateful for that. Oh, Lord, I pray that we would be good theologians of the cross, that we would master or rather be mastered by the cross, that we would love, we would love your death, O oh Christ, love your resurrection, love what it is that you purchased with your blood, that we would revel in that, that we would grow in our gospel fluency and familiarity, understanding all that you have accomplished for us. And I pray that we would be a people so gripped by that, so, so helped by that, so strengthened by that, given so much joy by that, that it would literally transform who we are individually and as a church as a whole. And Lord, one of the things, one of the things I, I, I pray and plead is that that would result in much gospel proclamation. That we wouldn't wait for programs to proclaim the gospel, that we would see the opportunities that are literally right in front of our face and that we would not be able to help but speak. So we look to you, O Christ, O risen one, O conquering one, O great king. Please work in our lives always and only for the glory of your name. Amen.